You're listening to the Feed the Ball Salon Podcast. In Volume 11, which you are playing now, you'll hear me, Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and Jim Urbina, Golf Course Builder, talk about a wide array of design-related topics with our guest, Dana Fry. Fry is a man with elaborate vision and foresight, who enjoys working and creating on a grand scale, a true architect in every sense of the word. Much of his most notable work was done with business partner Dr. Michael Herdzen, whom he began working for in 1988. But his design instincts and sense of artistry can be traced back to his early days coming up on staff with Tom Fazio. He now operates his own firm with partner Jason Straka, and the two are busy with projects throughout the United States and abroad. Jim and I dive into Dana's architectural outlook, which admittedly remains Fazio-esque, and get into the details of Calusa Pines in Naples, Florida, which he built with Herdzen, and two of his recent projects, the C.B. McDonald-inspired South Course at Arcadia Bluffs, and the new Union League Course in New Jersey. Jim and I appreciate all the support and feedback many of you have offered, and we thank you for listening. Please recommend this podcast to friends and colleagues if you're enjoying it, and subscribe to the show at your favorite podcast provider. While there, it would be great if you left a star rating and review, and remember to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at FeedTheBall. And now, what you've been waiting for, a deep, reflective discussion of architecture and design with the charming and lovely Dana Fry. Hey, Derek, you know, we're always talking about the different aspects of the golf course. We talked about with Reese, the construction. I talked about Thomas and the beauty and utility. We've talked about McKenzie's 13 rules. We've talked about a lot of these ideas, these, these different things that architects think about, builders think about. And this one, I would like to read to you from Thomas. It's a quote that really perplexes me. And I think in our interview today with Dana, I want to go down that road, talk about some greens. I hope we can. So if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote. Yes, please do. So this is from Mr. George Thomas, and I quote, In the forming of greens, beautiful modeling must conform to what a ball will do when it lands on a green from certain distances, and knowledge of what shot is necessary to reach it from strategic points decides the contours of that green. The green ought to be of proper size for the shot. Its opening for a long shot must have correct width. For short pitches, a green need have no opening for the running up shot of the short player. The green must be larger to hold his carrying shot. And this makes it too large for some man's long pitch shots. So Thomas starts to talk about, by the way, end quote, so Thomas starts to talk about how a green should be contoured. And he's talking about all these different shots. And this one perplexes me, as I told you, because I told you I studied Lynx golf and Lynx land golf. And it's the ball on the ground. It's rolling up to the green. But Thomas is, goes the other way. He talks about certain distances. He talks about the contours, how they should be receptive for long shots, for short shots. And I think to myself, is this something that I really want to contemplate on every green? 
or should it be natural and in the spirit of the ground game, Lynx Golf should be accepting of all run-up shots and not necessarily the distance from where it should be. I go back and forth on that, Derek. I don't know if this is a quote that I could live by, but it's certainly something that Thomas felt compelled to think about, and he's built some of the best. I guess I would ask, are they mutually exclusive? I mean, you, it, wouldn't you be able to build a green that could serve both functions? That what, what George Thomas is talking about is almost like a mathematical equation. You know, you yes. think, you'd think of a, of a modern architect um, working on a, a computer-assisted drafting program where they'd have quadrant one and quadrant two and quadrant three, and it's all mapped out with the slopes on, on how it... And by the way, they wouldn't have to do it on a computer. You could do it in the in the field or, or sure. on, uh, on sure. with a pencil and paper. But, but you're really thinking scientifically about shots coming in and pin placements and openings and slopes versus just kind of finding, like you said, on the Lynx land finding where the best green side is, you know, making a modifications if you have to, but let, letting the green be the lay of the land and let the, you know, as long as you have pinnable areas, letting the player kind of figure out how they want to play it. It seems to me that that way would be more rewarding on long-term multiple plays. You know, you, maybe, maybe you go for, <laughs> for two years before you ever figure out how to get the ball onto one pin section. A friend of mine, Tom yeah. Dunn, who's the publisher of McKellar Magazine, great golf writer and, and editor, he was telling me he, he played Yale all the time, and he said it took him years and years to figure out. I want to I want to say it was the tenth hole. There's sort of like this dip at the <laughs> front of the green, and he could never figure out how to how to get the ball to this one certain pin placement until he figured out that when they hit the ball in you know 1930, they had to hit a, a long low lofted shot and they would have to you know because they couldn't get the ball up that high from the distance that they were driving it longer second shot into this high elevated green that they would have to kind of like almost hit this like low running hook and that bank that he could never figure out how to get over and hold the ball that would kill the shot and then the ball would trickle up and I may have gotten that a little bit wrong but that was the essence of it took him years and years and he almost had to go back in time and think about the equipment they were using and and and, and reproduce that era and that thought process of of uh, of how to use the architecture use the ground and, and what the ball would have done and, and that's what the architect was thinking um so that didn't answer the question jims but that's what it made me think of and and when you create situations like that isn't that that isn't that the ultimate goal of architecture is to not be obvious to in, introduce a, an element of contour or, or, or angle or, or something that is unknowable at first it, it's you can't fully grasp it it takes years and years to get to know it i mean that that's the sign of high architecture isn't it well it's a sign of high architecture but it's a sign of knowing exactly where that player is going to hit their shot from derek i don't know where you're going to hit off the tee i don't know where mrs smith's gonna land on the green on the fairway i don't know where mr jones is gonna put his tee shot and so i struggle with this quote because it assumes that a shot is going to be long or a shot is going to be short and you should contour the green accordingly well if i knew where every player was going to hit their shot from then the only way I know that is on par threes. If I knew where everybody was going to stand in the fairway, I could consider 
the running shot. I could consider the carry shot. But see, I try to design greens for all levels, for all angles, for all approaches. And this this quote kind of perplexes me. But who am I to say that Thomas is not thoughtful in his high thinking because he produces Riviera, Bel Air, LACC, the list goes on and on. So you're right, somehow it's mathematical, but I don't know where you're going to be standing, Derek. If I do, or if I did, you would be that only person. I have to think about 150 other players of that day. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it seems to me like that you shouldn't worry about that. You should just design a green with interesting pin placements and then not try to be that scientific, not try to figure out who's going to hit it from what distance, not plan on that. The other thing about that quote, I think a lot of that is, you know, that that was an era. He wrote that book in, in the 1920s. That was an era when you just have all this great writing on architecture, all this great the yep. exchange of yep. thought. People are really developing the, the ideas, and, and maybe the ideas had been around for a while, but at least they're in, an, they're in an era where they're putting them down on paper. They're really formalizing their thoughts. So that strikes me as maybe more of a, an intellectual advancement or, or an intellectual thought that Thomas has that he's getting down on paper versus something that he probably ever truly held to. As we've known, the architectural rules are, once they're made, they're thrown out the window. Because I don't know that, I don't know Riviera well enough or or LA or, or, you know, any of the other Thomas courses well enough to know if any of the greens were broken down the way that he wrote in that passage. I don't think they are. I, I don't know that for certain. So I'm not sure that he even practiced that. That definitely seems well, like more of a of a modern convention, uh, is, you know, it, with it, where you have like, you know, really obvious designated areas of the green that are that have pin placement one, two, three, four, five. And I think it is it's more it feels more modern to me that a, a green should be a proper size to accept a shot. It's almost like you know, maybe this I take this quote with me when the tour calls me and says, "Hey, Jim." Uh, are you interested in helping us uh, design a, a, a green that will test the best players? Well, I pull out the quote from Thomas. It says, I have to have the correct width on the approach for a long shot and, the, and, and a shorter width of the approach for a lofted shot. Maybe this is my modern quote that I'll take with me, Derek. And I'll say, well, yeah, just, you know, just feeding off Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, the other, if you took that that idea to its extreme, you would ha- you would have a very interesting golf course, and it would really only be interesting, or be maximally interesting, if you had the world's best players, because then you you Correct. really know that they're all hitting from certain areas. And you, and you know what that golf course is? I'll give you I'll, I'll name it. It's Augusta National, and it didn't start out that way. I know McKenzie didn't think that way. I don't think he and Bobby Jones were saying you know this pin we're going to you know shape this screen for this shot this i think they had a much more naturalistic approach but what the golf course has evolved into over the decades after so many uh, renovations and fine tunings and the, having the the club and architects watch how players hit the ball and where they're hitting from you do have a very scientific golf course they can set those pins on those greens in certain combinations where they can whether or not withstanding they can manipulate scores out there and, and yeah. for that very reason they, they can make they can put a really difficult pin placement in because they know guys are coming in with longer irons and it's such a small area or they can put 
they can move it 15 feet away and it's, it collects a little bit. And so the hole comes, goes from being a little bit over par to a little bit under par. You do that over 18 holes. I mean, they've got it down, you know, just literally to a science. It's the most scientific golf course that there is for the professional game. And it's, it's a good thing. It's so diverse. They've taken that concept that Thomas is talking about and taking it to the absolutely highest, most scientific, mathematical level that is possible, I think. Yeah, and and it's so far away from how the game was first approached on the ground in the Lynx lands of Scotland and Ireland. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree with you. This quote has perplexed me for years. I think about it all the time. Is it applicable to modern designs? Is, is it really, was Thomas really thinking about that? At, at, as I said, the golf courses that he made famous for in the L.A. Basin, I go back and forth on it. Not every quote is applicable to me, but I learn from every one of them. You know, and that concept of, you know, is, is it old? Is it modern? I think that's very pertinent to our guest who's going to join us here in a few minutes. Dana Fry has worked in, in many different styles of design. You know, he, he started off with Tom Fazio, worked with Michael Herdson for a while. Now he's with Jason Straka. They have golf courses that are incre- incredibly like old school, like Linksy, like Aaron Hills. You know, when they, their, their first iteration of that golf course was just find it, seed it, you know, cut it, seed it, you know, dig some bunkers. It was as natural as you could get. They, they he. Most of their work is pretty modern. You know, it's very highly shaped, very visual, very uh, appealing to the eye, dramatic in that sense. He did uh, his newest course or one of his newest courses, Arcadia Bluffs South, is a historic course. That's that's a reference to the shaping of the, the early 1900s by Rayner and McDonald, that very geometric shaping. He's done that. He's done futuristic courses almost where there's such highly technical engineering projects like Calusa Pines. So this is a guy who bridges like basically every concept and style of architecture that you can imagine. He's done it. He's done it well. And we're going to get a chance to talk to him in a few minutes. And I look forward to asking him some questions about his greens at the throwback era of Arcadia, and then the greens uh, of, of, of some of his modern designs. And you're right, you know, he's working all over the world. I'll be curious if his value of the green, he thinks about that standing in different parts of the fairway. I look forward to it. Well, you know what? You're not going to have to wait very long. I think we should get to that conversation. Shall we do it? Let's do it. All Thank right, let's, let's bring sure. in Dana Fry. Here we go. Taking off my Italian jacket, I'm hanging it up. Yeah, yeah, I did. Give me a second. Well, I still got them, buddy. I love Italian jackets. That's all I got to say. What's the material, Dana? I don't know. It's whatever makes them in. I'm really into nice Italian clothes. I used to be a big, heavy guy for a long time, and then I I got into exercising about 12 years ago, and I work hard. And I actually do look pretty good in suits, so what can I say? I work hard. There you go. You know, I, I like it. I, I think Dana's every time I see Dana, I'm like, damn, I wish I could freaking be as GQ as Dana. He's he's fun to be around. <laughs> fun to be around. Well, you know, you know, uh, we've gotten Jim to wear a bow tie to each of these podcasts. Nobody can see <laughs> wow. him, but you know, he's he tells well, I don't me anyway. Look like that today, man. I got khaki ripped shorts. <laughs> 
dirt boots and sand in my shoes and like it's hot as heck we're in new jersey right now are you on the union league job yeah i, I basically i spent i've spent the last two weeks here i brought my son up when our clubs my stepson when our clubs closed down in naples so he could play in practice because they closed down for the the two clubs i did there naples national and calusa closed for five months in the off season and he needed a place to play in practice getting ready for tournaments so yeah, he's been we, – we, they always keep 18 of the 27 holes that were here open. Now he's playing two-thirds of them are the new holes he's playing. But he spends most of the day practicing, hitting balls and chipping and putting. And we played Pine Valley yesterday, so that was a lot of fun. Jeez, a, Jim and I are locked acting like there's something <laughs> going on out there that we need to stay home and you're playing Pine Valley and going everywhere. Well, I – my stepson, uh, I think I sent Jim a few of his swings. He he uh, he hits it pretty different. I mean, he uh, they, he played all the new back tees at Pine Valley, and I don't know if you've seen it lately. And Top Fazio lengthened like number four and number seventeen and eighteen and two or three other holes. I mean, he lengthened holes in some cases by a hundred yards par fours. And uh, Good you time. know, he, everybody talks about how long number four is, and it's like a 290 carry to the crest of the hill from that. And you're hitting uphill on number four at Pine Valley now, probably 30 feet, 40 feet maybe, from that new tee. And most, obviously, unless you can fly at 290 to 300, you can't get to the crest of the hill. And I think he flew it up to the crest and started going down the slope, and he hit a, hit a nine iron. It's five. 498 or something the hole is and he's hitting you know he just it's just unbelievable how far the kids fly that's not even that's not even golf is it jim no it's 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 crazy how far down the hill do you have to walk from three green to get to the new 14 well you you basically walk uh just before you get to the old tee that you know the members tee there's a little pathway that goes down and it's probably from there it's probably a good 50 yard walk downhill and then slightly wow. uphill to that wow. tee. I mean, it, that tee is probably in elevation, 20 feet lower than the members tee and off to the right. So it's more of a dog leg, right? Got it. it. But, uh, yeah, he, they added a lot of length out there. Wow. I was there when they were putting a new tee on 14 and they were thinking about 15s, but I had not seen all of the stuff you had just described. I know they play the Crub Cup there, but why why else would they need to to lengthen that? I, I think they just, I guess, obviously they get a lot of good players there. And, you know, some of those holes now, like I'm going to give you, like Noah on number two, obviously you know where that cross has it, the bunkers yep. at, mm-hmm. at the yep. toe of the hill. He hit his driver through the, and he hit a driver, it was uphill, as you know, slightly, 10, 15 feet, and to the to the landing area. But then the fairway ends at about 285 from the back tee, and he hit it through the end of the wind, about a 10-mile-an-hour wind. He hit it through the fairway, and he stopped about a yard or two short of the cross hazard, the bunkers. Wow. Which is fine. He could hit a three-wood and wouldn't take it out of play, but, you know, the caddy told him he couldn't reach it because it was uphill into the wind, and... And he's 15. I mean, you give this kid another two to three years. He's, he's only 15? Be, he's 15. He's six foot two. Good God. He, he flies at about 295 in the air consistently at sea level. And, you know, he's going to be flying at 320 in the air by the time he hits goes to college, without question. Doesn't necessarily – he is a good player. It doesn't mean you're going to be the greatest player in the world, but it, it just shows how – So many kids are like that. I mean, I – So I, many I, kids are yeah. like that. It's unbelievable how – 
You know, I spent I spent a little bit of time around some college programs last fall, and it was all eye opening to me and, and brand new. What I was surprised about to learn was that college coaches spend almost no time working on their scholarship athletes' swings or their games. They may kind of tinker with the short game a little bit, but almost everybody who plays high division one golf comes in with with high level training, their own coaches, maybe That's a correct. support group. So they their a their swings are already like almost spot on and if there's anything work to be done they can do it when they go back home or over videos or whatever so most of what college golf coaches do is kind of talk to them about uh, managing their game how to prepare how to comport yourself it's it's all the mental side of it that's where the real coaching comes in well that's it, it when the kids you know they get to the college level i mean the guys that are gonna play at the highest level and then the guys that try to get to the tour and the ties that make it on tour, it all become at some point they all hit it unbelievable to an extent. Yeah. And this comes down to mentally who's stronger and has got the heart. Well, that's going to be fun for you. That's going to be fun for you, Dana, over the next few years to kind of observe this and go along for that ride. I love it because I, you know, I honestly, I, I won't say I quit playing golf, but you know, probably 15 years ago, I really dived off and played very little golf. And I'm talking, five times a year or something. I just lost the fire for it. I, as Jim knows, I traveled, not only did I travel a lot, I travel all over the world. And, uh, and I just, when I, when I would have spare time, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to be around golf just cause it was literally all consuming to me. But with Noah now, you know, obviously, you know, he wants to play golf every waking hour. So if I'm home, we're out at the golf course. I mean, that's just what we do. A lot of times, I, to the point, I don't want to, you know, I'll play, when I am home, I'll play two, three days in a row, and I'll just want to just drive around with them, because I get, I mean, the kid just, not, and this kid wants to play golf from sun up to sundown. That's so, that's the key, isn't it? You know, you, you see these tour players, and they get to, some of them, some of them get to the point where they almost can't wait to retire, and then when they do, they're not, they're going to go fish and not play golf anymore, but then some of them, like Jordan Spieth, you could or Ricky Fowler. They just you can tell they just love to play the game, and I think that's Absolutely. that's one of the keys to to having a successful career. But before we, before we go get too off track, Jim, I wanted to ask you and Dana this: going back to um, a, a historic course like Pine Valley and, and making adjustments to it. Obviously, I think we would all three of us would agree that that we would rather not see the architecture of those courses like that changed. But is there is it okay to extend tees back? Is, is that still, uh, I guess, permissible in our, you know, uh, highfalutin way of, of being judgmental about architecture? Is it okay to just add T's if you're not adjusting anything else? Dana, go ahead. I'll follow up. Well, you know, obviously Jim and I come at things from two different backgrounds. Holy, we both are construction guys, so that we have 100% in common. But, you know, I learned from Fazio, and when I say I, I, I worked for Tom Fazio out of college. And uh, then I was trained by a guy named Andy Banfield and another guy that you both, I don't even know if you ever met him, but you certainly have heard of Mike Strands. Mike Strands taught me how to run a bulldozer into shape. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard how good a graphic artist he was. He used to draw pencil sketches and just give them to you. And, uh, you know, so I come at it from that background, from that. Andy taught me to move dirt and Mike Strands taught me to shape. So I was taught that, you know, and everything I did was a new golf course, so I never worked on restorations. And that's just being real honest because Fazio didn't do them. Or if he did, he did some early ones before I was there that 
were not well received. And from what everything I have seen from that was rightly so, like what he did at Inverness, which was George and Tom's work and was yes. since completely changed now by Andrew Green. And now people tell me it's fantastic. So when I go look at some of these golf courses, you know, fat, Tom, you know, I'm very partial to Tom Fazio because I owe my career to him. I also think he's also one of the finest people as a human being I've ever met because of everything he has done. Uh, most of which is not even publicized for underprivileged children, battered wives. Uh, he's done a lot with his money above and beyond golf just to make his life, you know, glitzy. He's really given back to the community. So I think the world of him. That being said, you know, he's done some restorations at a few golf courses, whether it be Riviera, uh, obviously at Pine Valley, and, you know, some has not been well received. I don't mind the tease that he's put at, at Pine Valley because I actually think that, that you know, I, I, I think increasing the distance, trying to, to keep the original architect's intent of where they're hitting the next shot from and the approximate type, whether if they were hitting a five iron in the day and maybe today that's a seven iron. But certainly when you have guys that are driving over the hill from the member's tee on the fourth hole at Pine Valley, and now they're not even hitting drivers because they're driving it through the fairway because they carry the crest, hit the downslope, and they're in the – so they start laying up with irons. I mean, I guarantee when the original architect built it, that was not what was intended 100 years ago. So I think adding tees to me in situations, depending on the holes, especially on the long holes, want to try to keep as the longer holes is fine. Jim may disagree with that. I don't know. No, I, I, I don't disagree because, Dana, all the architects' books I've read, McKenzie, Tillinghast, you name it, they all talked about elasticity. Yep. Being able to uh, lengthen the golf course as needed, everybody fought the ball way early on. And we talk about the ball and how far it goes. They were complaining about the gutta percha to the to the Haskell, to, the, to all these different styles. So I have no problem with, with – with moving tees back or, or building the, the elasticity, as they say. And I agree with you, Dana, on a couple things. First and foremost, when an architectural feature, when an architectural feature such as a ridge line or a, or, or a cross bunker, in the case of Pine Valley or, or Garden City or some of the other clubs that I've consulted at, uh, Garden City, which has cross bunkers, when people, the, when kids, young men, women are driving over the, over the top of the cross bunkers, you know there's something has to be changed. And, and I, Dana, I would rather build a tee back than change the whole cross bunker and move it down and closer to the green. So I'm in total agreement with you. And architects of, of years past have always talked about elasticity. He is, he is absolutely right. The, 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 how far kids are hitting it today, the architects of that era, they knew that was going to happen. And, and yeah. they couldn't stop it. And so uh, I'm in agreement with Dana. You know, I'm, I'm very, I'm very uh, judicious when I do it. I, I'm careful to not uh, compromise the design, but a ridge line, a cross bunker, some of those features, you have to think about elasticity. They all did. Well, Jim, sometimes you and I talk about just saying no, you know, uh, the 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 properness or the righteousness or whatever of, of 
saying no to something, whether it's a job or or an adjustment, the, the, adding T's. When you guys talk about that, that's that makes a lot of sense and it works in a lot of places when you have room. But at some point, you're going to get back up against a fence and you can't add length and it becomes a slippery slope. And the reality is so few players and you guys know this. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So few players hit the ball far enough where you need to start moving back, tease back. So then it becomes a question of. Is it in the club's overall best interest to keep doing this when so few people are are is, is are having a problem with the architecture because they hit it too far? And it, it does open the door to more modifications down the line. It depends on how strong the club is. Most some many clubs say we're not going to worry about it or we don't have the luxury to worry about it. But you can understand why some people get a little nervous when you see a club like Pine Valley extending tees back uh, when there's not going to be a U.S. Open or anything coming there anytime soon. Well, and for me, Dana and, and Derek, I'm not going to play them. And 1% of the club is going to play them. Do I, do I do it without even thinking about it? No, I think about it a lot. And I don't want to start modifying golfers so much that you don't you, you lose all reality of what's right and wrong. But in the case of a of a tee ten or twenty yards back, thirty yards back, uh, when the routing and the walk is not compromised, I have no problem with it. I just won't do it on every hole. And Dana and Derek and Dana both, I'm not afraid to say no. Uh, let's look at the options, especially on par fives. How about we just change it to a par four? Well, you know how that goes over, like a lead balloon. <laughs> yep. Well, and I also think a lot of times the holes that they do, and they did at Pine Valley on most cases, the holes they tried to lengthen were some of their longer holes. You know, because if you're going to take, why would you ever lengthen the eighth hole at Pine Valley? I mean, literally, That's correct. that would just be insane if somebody to even think about it. But you could possibly, you know, where where you can, like on a number four, or 18, you know, they can go back and they could lengthen it dramatically. And, you know, but again, they lengthen 18 dramatically and the kid still hits a driver nine. <laughs> I mean, they, that tee, I swear to God, I'd be hitting a three wood into the green, but you know, he hits it 50 yards by me, 50, 40 to 60 yards. He flies at a good 60 by me. You know, I hit a lower ball flight. I get some, so maybe if he's 40 to 50 yards by me, well, then he's, he's two irons stronger than me. I mean, all of a sudden, I mean, the kid's got to, to play the same shot I have to. He, the guy's got to be, he has to be 100 yards back. Yeah. I mean, it's and I, unbelievable when you, when you, 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 and I'm playing with this every day now. And I'm, because, uh, you know, I remember we were doing Aaron Hills, you know, and Mike Davis, uh, when he, uh, when they started talking about the open and we, and we started lengthening some of the holes and he wanted the dog legs at, Jim, don't fall over, 320, <laughs> 320 yards. I started in 1983 with Tom Fazio, and we built the landing areas at 267 yards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And Dana, I've told After the story. Talk, whatever this yeah. is, in 1983 to you know to 2015, 2012, 13, planning for the Open, and all of a sudden we're we're 50 yards longer in the landing areas. And I told a story, Dana, about working with Pete at Arizona State University for the for the the Pac-12 teams, uh, and. We, we changed it from 266 to 300, uh, and that was back in 1987. And people were looking at us like, what are you doing? But that's what Pete was thinking back then. 
And just as Fazio was thinking about it, and now you do to Aaron Hills. But this leads to me to the question that I have for you. You always talk about Calusa Pines. Uh, I haven't been there yet, but you love the place. Yep. Would you be offended? Would you think the strategy would be uh, uh, stifled or diluted if they started moving tees back on you? Well, number one, I, I realize that, well, number one, if they don't do something in another 20, 30, 40 years, if this happens again, what? who knows, Are in the next 40 years, are we going to gain another 50 yards off the tee? Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if something has to happen. So if if that does happen, and, and Calusa is lucky in the land it has, it does in areas have room to expand, they could do it. I hope they do it. They get a guy like you on it that would be sympathetic to what the original guy thought. And they would, again, if you only start lengthening what are the long par fives, it, like 13 at Calusa is meant not to be reached in two. It's 612 yards, I think, from the back tee. Well, you know what? There are guys that are getting there now from yeah. time to time in Florida on flat land at sea level. But we still some of the long par fours, you know, the four or five really long fours out there that hopefully they were going to hit medium irons into have become driver short irons now. Yeah. And now the good the thing that Calusa has that other courses that I've done don't have is it it has probably some of the most diabolical green settings and green speeds and contours in the United States. I mean, the greens at Calusa Pines are as challenging on a daily, but when the green speeds get up and it gets firm, it's there is part of greens complexes to play and putt on and chip around as Oakmont, which I think are some of the hardest in the world. And That's a big statement. So the defense that Calusa Pines has has and never will be length. When we built it, it was around 7,200 yards. It's they can max it out at like 73 now, and it's so it, by today's standards, that's not long. And but that's not what makes Calusa. You know, people talk about the visual drama, which it has because of a 50 foot fill. You know, and several holes tying in and out of that fill. But what they, they remember that the the, the visual, but what the golfers talk about is how difficult the shots into and around the greens are because they're perched up in the air in some cases five feet and in some cases 12 or 15 feet and when the greens have like a, a fall off in the front they might have a false side they may have a false back and some may have it all on the same hole uh sort wow. of like what a piners does and when you get greens that are stiffened which i'm not it can, and i'm not saying this is what should be done when you get greens that at times i have been there when they had the um, men's the men's club championship, I'm not kidding you. When they had the green stepping at 15.2, <laughs> that's literally ludicrous. Is that even grass at that point? Can you call it grass? <laughs> so what happens is when he, when they get the wind up at Calusa, and they get cold weather, the greens there literally become like it, it is. You know, you put average members and golfers there, and it becomes very difficult, uh, to say the least. And that is what creates the challenge, and that's what people, you know, I think the vast majority of people really like, love Calusa because it visually, the, how dramatic it is. Some people may think it goes overboard with some of the with some of the green contours when the speeds get up. And when you play it in October, November, when it's coming out of the rainy season, yeah, it's dark golf. 
And the greens that they have Tiff Eagle greens, they they putt phenomenally. They putt like you know they're perfect. Almost doesn't even seem like there's grain in the in the in the Bermuda at all. And you know when you can fly the ball and stop it is one thing, but when you fly it, you know when it gets firm there, and it gets dry, and they speed them up for any type of a tournament, or if the owner wants to play with somebody's mind. You know, you a normal golfer, the only distance you should ever even think about is the front edge of the green. Because yeah. you, if you fly it anywhere else in the green, you're, you have no chance of staying. And well, I don't, you know, that's, but, you know, that's a, you know, it's a, it's built by one guy and he can do what he wants and that's what he chooses to do. And, and, uh, you know, that's just the way that club is. And, and, and Dana, I, which goes back to something I had been reading to Derek about Thomas. Uh, George Thomas, he talked about deciding what what the style of the green should be depending on the shot. Did you stand in the fairways, in the landing areas, and think about the type of shot going into that green as you started to lay them out, or were you thinking about all levels of players? Well, we were thinking about all levels of players, and, you know, certainly some of the longer holes have the bigger greens and they're the slightly and they're softer contours and not, generally speaking, as many false the fall offs and stuff. But what I never anticipated was a green. I'm telling you when the greens at Calusa get hard and you're in the landing area, you can hear your ball hit the green. Yeah. And I've never, I mean, sometimes you'll see your ball bounce two or three feet in the air. Yeah. I mean, when, when they talk about hard greens, I mean, this, this is, I'm talking, they can get some hard greens there. And they, again, when you're on them, they putt unbelievably. It's just hard to, you know, many times when you play there and their greens are like that, you might hit your ball on, a, you know, like a five handicap may hit 10 or 12 greens in the air. But at that time, see, you might only stay on five or six of them. Wow. That's how challenging it gets. You, you it just with your recollection, Jim, the first time you see it. Well, a lot of it will depend the time of year you go and also the conditioning because it's in, it's a phenomenally conditioned golf course. Right. It, it will depend on how firm and how hard the greens are and how the pace they have them at. And, you know, that's the funny thing about design. People always talk to me about green speeds. Well, what time of the year are you talking about? Uh, and you just described Calusa as being two different, three different, four different types of golf courses, depending on when time you play it. That is correct. If you if, if, if when they when it opens, you always can fly the ball on. The greens are putting it on eleven, which is plenty fast enough for the majority of the world, uh, and especially with the contours they have in the greens. But if you go back to that course in say January in Florida, it gets a real cold spell when it might get down to forty degrees, and the wind the the wind changes direction and it's blowing at thirty miles an hour, and it you know and it actually feels really cold. When that happens overnight, the golf course changes. Yeah. You know, like when we played Aaron Hills, you know, one of the things, the concern going into Aaron Hills at the open was, you know, we had wide fairways from day one. And the reason the wide fairways are at Aaron Hills is because the winds are so severe there normally. I mean, it's very common to have 20 to 30 mile an hour winds on a daily basis during the season. And, so we, we had these wide fairways. We're hoping that, you know, the balls would you'd hit and, and you'd have ball so the ball could stay in the fairway. 
And we thought that, you know, Mike might tighten them up, but he didn't really tighten them up. Just a couple of cases that he left them that wide. Well, lo and behold, we go into that, you know, the, that open and, and they had it pretty fast and firm a couple weeks before. And then we started getting all that rain and we didn't have much wind. And that was the defense of the golf course. Right. And, you know, you, you take, cause I'm a, Mike Davis is, you hear a lot of people say it, but Mike Davis says it all the time. You want a golf course hard, just get the greens hard, physically hard and let the wind blow and grow yeah. the rough up. And all of a sudden I don't care what course you're playing. It's hard. And see, Derek, that goes back to the same old thing. When people want to change golf courses, when they want to modify them because of certain certain conditions, well, that's only a, a certain part of the time. I'm sure Aaron Hills, Dana, doesn't play like that all the time, but you know, you could count on it, you know, fifty percent of the time. Correct. Hey, let's take a quick break now to hear from our sponsor. Okay, I don't have an actual sponsor, but I will very quickly talk about how Golf Digest is available digitally on the Golf Digest app. Everything you get in the magazine is available through the app, plus videos and interactive features. And that's important to note because most of the magazine features are not available on GolfDigest.com, only through the digital download. In Issue 7, I've written a long profile on architect Jim Ang, who was one of the most sought-after architects of the 2000s, but is now only working internationally on one project at a time. Ang, my guest for the very first Feed the Ball podcast, Episode 1, is a true visionary and artist who developed a style of design distinctly his own. So what happened? You can read about it in the digital edition. And what's great about the digital edition is that it lasts. Even if you're listening to this months or years in the future, I'm recording this in late June 2020, you can flip through the past issues and find the stories I'm referencing here. So don't miss anything. Download the Golf Digest Digital Edition, available for your phone or tablet via your favorite app store. Dana, I want to go back to the to Calusa Pines for a moment, and maybe even contrast it with Aaron Hills. You've uh, earned a reputation over the course of your career as somebody who's very creative and likes to use landforms in creative ways and, 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 and set a stage for the golfer to play in. My question is, did Calusa Pines up to this point in your career, was that the greatest canvas you've had to work on to explore a, a type of technical creativity? Uh, and, and compare that to Aaron Hills, which at least early on was the opposite of Calusa Pines and, and maybe what you had to have a pre- predilection toward wanting to do. Well, you know, Calusa was a the golf course itself. The boundaries around the the, the existing course is around just over. It's like 320 acres, give or take a few acres. The whole site when he bought it was like 504. It had or 506. It had like four acres of wetlands, which is unheard of in Naples. And the site had exa- literally one foot of elevation change in 500 acres. We then had 300 acres to build Calusa. We built some massive, you know, and, and the in his, you know, a lot of people say it. I want to build, you know, he definitely the, the owner Gary Chinsaw from Chicago. You know, he had a dream and he wanted to build the greatest golf club in Florida and one of the greatest courses in the world. And that that's there's been multitudes of clients that have had that same mantra. Uh, but you'd have to understand Gary. And have been around him to realize he, I mean, this guy, he was different. He was wired different than almost anybody I'd met. And so I told him, you know, the only way when you have a site that, because the water level, what's the hardest thing in Florida, in South Florida, which most people don't realize is the water table 
can come up right flush to the ground level in the rainy season in July, August, September, October. And what that means is in a site like Naples National, just down the road, the, the water actually comes up above the tree line. So you might have six or eight inches of water in the standing trees still to this day after 25 years of being there. So, but Calusa, it just came up to the natural ground level. So what that means is you only have, the only way you can create any features is to go up vertically. And my big thing was, you know, Florida has whatever, 12 or 1300 golf courses. And in the Southern half of the state, you literally have only a handful that are good, maybe 10 or 12 golf courses, a couple that are border are, are really great golf courses. And I said, you know, if you want to create a truly world-class golf course, you got to go up. And I'm not talking about not naming other architects, but going like everybody else has done and build a series of, you know, eight-foot high mounds with bunkers cut into the mounds, which looks man-made and artificial to me the way I was taught. I was taught by Andy Banfield that you go and you create a mass landform. And that's and there was an area on the site, which is where the 15th green is. There had been a big a forest fire caused by lightning five or 10 years before. So it was very small growth trees in amongst a, a massive forest. You know, and the area might have been 10 acres or 15 acres at the time. And that just became the and it was out in the middle of the golf course. And that became this where the idea formed of doing this massive landfill. Now, on paper, the site existed about between elevation 13 and 14 above sea level. And the, <laughs> and the water table comes up to just below elevation 13. So we came up on a plan and we showed a 35. It was about a 30 uh, it filled up to elevation 35. So it, it, on plan, it showed like 21 feet of fill. When we were when we started Right before we started construction, which is an integral part of the Calusa Pine story, and John Strawn, if you know John, just wrote a tremendous book on the history of Calusa Pines and how it got to, to where it is. Well, Gary, the owner, the most integral part of the whole Calusa Pine story is, is right before construction started, he was diagnosed with cancer. I think it was a carcinoma of an unknown origin, which is the same thing that Winnie Palmer died of same cancer Winnie Palmer died of and uh, the pride his his outlook was not very good and if I if, if in your life you know Gary's the most type a obsessive compulsive guy I've ever met and he just willed himself to live and you know when we we started construction when he was undergoing chemo and radiation and and I think that everybody that was doing working on that job, it became a bigger than life project just because of what this guy was going through. And you could see in his wife to this day swears it kept him alive. So wow. but it also had in it me in a position where he did trust me. And that fill that was supposed to go to elevation 30, I think it was 35, if I remember exactly, from a 12 or 13. That fill in it, when I kept, I was coming almost every week to that job for two to three days because it was a, it was obviously one of the bigger jobs we'd ever done at that time. It was the biggest job certainly, and I kept every time I kept coming. I says we got to go higher. We got to clear more trees, and I mean we had people in South Florida that had never seen a hill above ten feet or fifteen feet in their lifetime, <laughs> and, and that hill Mount Dana, up, yeah. Well, that hill ended up that hill ended up at elevation fifty nine. Wow. And, 
And it, it basically it has parts of eight different holes that tie into it, four different green complexes and four tees. But then that fill goes out into other holes and goes all the way across what where the lake was into the 18th fairway and up into the clubhouse, which is on a 20 feet of fill. So it, it gives you the illusion of of the site was a rolly piece of land. And, and, and I, I can literally tell you, can't there's been, pick a number, 100 people over the last 10 years that have told me when they played Calusa for the first time, they just thought we were lucky and we hit the greatest natural site in southwest Florida ever. Because yeah. they couldn't believe there was this sand ridge. And, and that was because of the revegetation that was done on the ridge, which was, you know, that whole site is palmetto, palm trees, oak trees, and a few other, uh, you know, uh, plants, uh, ornamental grasses and shrubs that grow there. And we planted, you know, and, and if, if I, if I learned one of the things I remember learning the most from Tom Fazio personally, who has recreated a lot of landscapes on jobs he's done is, you know, to make it look natural, you got to take the existing environment that was there wherever it stops reintroduce it and then replant it on whatever you create and then give it time and it will look natural again. And, you know, he was right. He is right for a hundred percent fact. The guy is right. And, you know, and I hope, and I think that Andy taught Banfield from Fazio taught me how to move big volumes of dirt to where when it's graded properly and you just have one fill, not 400 little fills, you have just one fill and everything cut into the fill. You can make it look natural. It just it just is just a, a massive way, different way of thinking than, you know, like I, I remember specifically, and you can ask him, Bill Corr was going down to Naples because his wife Sue was going to put on a, a, a she was going to speak at something. And he wanted to go out to Calusa because he had heard of it. And this is like 15 years ago. And, and I remember getting a phone call and I don't know where I was. And he just... And Bill, you know, he's sitting up on top of this 50-foot fill, you know, in, in a forest. And, he, and, he, and I remember exactly his exact words. He says, Dana, I wouldn't even know where to begin to think <laughs> to do something like this. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, and I think part of the reason I, I think different than, you know, because, you know, when I tell people my favorite architects, you know, they'll send like a guy like Tom Doak, like shake his head. Like I'm, you know, I'm a three eyed monster because, you know, I, I really, I, I think core Crenshaw will go down as one of the greatest architectural design teams, designers of all time. I also think guys like Tom Doak and Gil Hansen, Jim, Mike DeVries, these other guys are doing fantastic work, but you know, I also, you know, I equally like equally not, I'm not saying it's better. It's just different. I really like Tom Fazio's work a lot. Part of it's because I was trained that way. And, you know, and I, but I also know some of the clients he's had and some of the sites that he's had. And, you know, and I just look at the raw creativity. I'm not saying it's for everybody. And it's certainly not low profile environmental type golf. Uh, but it is a beautiful style of golf courses that, that obviously a lot of people like. Dana, I'm just, I guess what I'm trying to get at with that question is, given what you just said, which makes a lot of sense, and, and who you are, and, and the way your mind works, at this point in your career, do you, do you need a, a major project, a major construction site like that, uh, an opportunity to take uh, something and recreate it into something different? Do you need that to stimulate you at this point in your career? 
No, what I what, what I like, you know, now if I had one thing that I and I'm not saying I don't saying I dislike like this about these people, but if if I had to say something that I think I would like to see different from a Core Crenshaw or a Tom Do or a Gil Hans is a departure in style to do a different type of a look, you know, maybe a different style of bunkering or just to change it up a little bit. And what I like is I like doing the raw creativity part of it, but I also like to have the chance, like I did a course at Arcadia Bluffs, the South course at Arcadia Bluffs. I can assure you there is no architect that knows me that would go there. They, they now they know I did, but would think that I could have done something like that. And that what was that? That was trying to make a golf course really look old school, much in the model of a Chicago golf club look. You know, and you know which I love. I mean, Chicago golf is one of my twenty favorite golf courses in the United States. Before I played it three times when I. When I got this job, that job, we were up on the hill on three, which is the highest point of the property. And uh, and I said, you know, if we clear all these trees, we could build a Chicago golf club style of a golf course here. And the owner who had built Arcadia Bluffs, which is the polar opposite of what I'm talking now, just instantly said, I love it. They said, have you ever been there? He said, yes. He said, it's one of my favorite. He said, mine, mine too. And off we went. And then I, I went to Chicago golf like 13 times over a matter of four or five months during when we started construction, not to copy holes, but to copy the style, you know, with the straight line fairways, with the bunkers jutting two thirds away across the fairway, flat bottoms, bent grass in the, the, the center of the, uh, the bunker as you approach it. But it may start on the left side of the back of it collars that have these incredible tilts on it so severe that you have to put spikes in the rollers to help the the walk mower stay to mow the collar and that's all stuff they have at chicago golf and and so to me what i need to be interested is a job where you can really stretch the creative mind it doesn't always mean if you have a great piece of natural land i want to move as little dirt as you can within reason which is what aaron hill started out to be you know, Aaron Hills started out, you know, Ron Witten was involved along with Mike Kurtzen and myself and Ron really, and his, and now you can ask Ron Witten and I'll say it here and he's going to hear it and he'll shake his head and say, that's exactly what I said. Ron Witten told the original owner early on, he didn't want Dana Fry to Fazio the course. <laughs> that's Ron. That's not me. That's Ron Witten's that quote. And, you know, and early on, I was so leery of making too many suggestions of moving any dirt because I didn't want to be construed as trying to screw up this great natural site. Right. And I think in hindsight, if I look back, the thing I, I wish I would have done differently at the beginning of Aaron Hills is I should have stood my ground more on holes that where I really knew that some dirt needed to be moved. And... Uh, and which we ended up doing later, but it wasn't in that first go around because when it opened, you know, there were five or six holes or shots in the pit that affected an entire hole that the vast, like overwhelmingly people didn't like. And those have since gone back and got corrected. We still have some blind shots. You know, we still have, you know, Lord knows we have some severe bunkering there, uh, but, it, but it doesn't have the, I mean, it was... You know, when, when it originally was opened, 
it was arguably, you know, as, as natural as the sand hills. But the problem was the grades at, at this course were, were even more abrupt than what you had at sand hills and bigger. Sand hills, you'd have dunes and they were small. Some of these, these are eskers that run length of golf holes. And some of them just needed to be altered. And so there is a fine line to walk. And that's why I really ad- admire the guys like Bill and Ben and Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Jim, because they get on these really beautiful pieces of land with really good topography. And they know when they have, and they, they, they leave as much of it alone as they can, but they at time realize you got to move some dirt and they're so good at it. You know, I can't remember the holes because I once played in Tom. The only time he ever invited me to Tom Doak's golf tournament at Pacific Dunes, and I know Jim was there, I think. Yes, I was, yep. And I remember Tom showing around some of the holes where they raised some of the fairways, you know, a lot to make it playable. And and I can't remember for what reasons, but the thing was, you can't tell anywhere they moved dirt out there. And that, to me, is really awesome architecture. And so... I, I, you know, so when all these guys get the, 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 the accolades for doing these great natural golf courses, what I admire the most about these guys is that they really know when they do do earthwork, almost all of those guys I've mentioned know how to do it and do it where it doesn't look like they did it, which and is I can say the, all after. And I can say the same for when I look photos of Calusa Pines, it makes me want to go. I see the free flowing lines at, at Calusa. I see the the raised up greens, I see the backgrounds, kind of reminds me of Shadow Creek. And then I, I'm looking forward to going to see your work at Arcadia, the Chicago style of, of golf. Did you on purpose say, I'm, I'm just not going to go down that free flowing line like at Calusa, and I oh. want to go straight line at Ar- Arcadia South because you were just trying to do something different? Well, I. I really did. The site is, you know, people keep saying how flat the, the south course at Arcadia is. The fact of the matter is it has exactly 60 feet of grade change from its highest to its lowest point in 313 acres. Yeah. But a lot of that is deceiving because it's got these low just holes in the ground that some go up to 20 feet in the ground that are just sunken holes, you know, quite yeah. a few of them. Yeah. So it does appear to be to the eye to be fairly flat on most of the site. And my big thing was, you know, we really could create, and I really believed it wholeheartedly. And and the owner did too. We really believed we could really create a a style of a golf course that felt like that golden age architecture that was originally by McDonald and then changed in the twenties by Rainer have that same look. So yeah, I, there was a clear conscious effort to not do tie in grades and do the shaping and the earth moving at all. Like I've done on any other project I've ever worked on. Did it hurt your feelings when you, when you couldn't follow the Andy Banfield, Mike Strands, Fazio blending with that golden age, uh, uh, blocky look. Well, you know, it's <laughs> interesting. That's where, you know, where, you know, Mike was, um, you know, again, I don't want to get too emotional here. Cause I, you know, I, I literally love Mike Strands. And, um, you know, when he, right before he passed away, he asked to see two people and he asked to see Andy Banfield and myself. And he, you know, wow. told he loved us and, uh, you know, 
how great his life was better because you know he we were in it and you know it was, it was an emotional thing so i when i talk about mike i get very emotional now i get the same way about forrest fesler because you know i got to know forrest so well through mike but you know what i liked about mike at the end is you know mike when when he went out on his own he did a radical change from the fazio stuff i mean he started doing some severe blind shots and severe contours and some very abrupt landforms that would tie out into golf courses that 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 were not like a Fazio where everything is, as Bill Corr says, Fazio does beautiful looking courses, but everything's too perfect. And Mike started to do things that didn't look perfect. And I just, uh, I, I thought it, I was, I really admired him for doing it because it really go to, it went against everything he was initially taught to do by Andy and, and the, and, and Tom. Yeah. So I, I hope I do some of that. You know, I, I, I have a hard time like the job I'm at in New Jersey. When I start moving big dirt, you know, I become obsessed, literally obsessed. And that's not an understatement with making it look natural. Right. And and so you do get a lot of long, 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 you know, hundreds of yards long, in some cases, five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred yards long of flowing lines. Yep. To, to then when it gets re-landscaped, you know, and you put the pines and the oaks and the cedars, which we have here in southern New Jersey, back on it, to where it blends right back into the forest, you know, in 20 years, like at Calusa, it's, the thing looks like it's been there for eternity. You yeah. know, in 10 or 15 years' time, this is going to do the same. And But it is hard for me when I start moving the volumes of dirt to not do that. Yeah, because the lines are... The longer they are, the, the longer they flow, the the the, the better they blend in the, to the surroundings, and that's why some people struggled with the McDonald and Raider look. It looked too geometric, and so I'm curious right. to see if you blended both of that long lines and straight lines. Uh, when I go see the course, I haven't seen it yet, Derek, but I want to go see it. I I talked to Dana several times as he passed through Chicago. He was glowing about it. Uh, I owe him that visit. Likewise, well, I, I sure hope you do it, and you, you'll see the um, those. Uh, it, it's amazing how you can get you know so consumed with some of these jobs because they really do be, as you know, Jim. They become like part of your family and your kids. Oh, that's family. I mean, family. you take it that serious, but you know, you really get to believe in that you can really make this thing look that way. And I realize that some people. Without naming names, will always discredit. <laughs> I do because I do this at times. But you know, I I, I asked you know you need to know the you know down here in New Jersey the clients' goals were different. It was the Union League of Philadelphia. They bought an old course I did twenty three years ago uh, called the Sand Barons, which was built. We built twenty seven holes for three point four million dollars in the late nineteen nineties. You know, we're going to spend seven times that now building 27 holes on the same yeah. site. And but they, you know, Mike, when I sat down in front of the, the Union League of Philadelphia is the largest city club in the world. They have over thirty five hundred members at their downtown club. And they were building this. They bought this club for their uh, members that had homes on the Jersey Shore in Avalon and Stone Harbor, which is like the Hamptons for Jersey. Beautiful area of the country. And. And, and Jeff McFadden, the general manager, really wanted to build something that was 
really good, really special place. And so I sat in front of the whole crowd, and, and, and by this time I'd already talked the board into to doing a Calusa Pines type of a looking course. And I said, um, in, in one of the somebody in the audience got up and asked, it, you know, could have been fed by Tom Doak to ask the question for all I know. And he said, <laughs> I just don't get doing the big fill. Why <laughs> you do a big fill? And I said, well, I said, let's talk about it. I said, look, let's look at the three best courses in, in the Jersey Shore area. You got Hidden Creek, uh, Atlantic City Country Club, and I'm drawing, and then Galloway. The one's a Fazio, and mm-hmm. Tom Doak greeted uh, Atlantic. Uh, Atlantic, and then uh, Core Crenshaw. Three really good golf courses. I like all three of them for different reasons. But I said, you know, you're just a casual golfer now, or you're, you're not playing there all the time. With a few exceptions, can you really remember the holes? You can remember it's a great place, but do you remember the holes where they're etched in your mind? And and most people said, no, not really. We agree with what you're saying. And I said, well, you know, you know, I want to build something where you really remember where you were, and you remember specific shots, like not just one shot, but a lot of shots. And I said, and that's what going up vertically enables you to do. And the coolest thing here, which hopefully doesn't get lost among people later on, is the difference between here and Naples, Florida, is the water table is anywhere from four to seven feet into the ground. So from the forward tees through the greens complexes, if they're not in the big fill area, everything is at or below natural grade. So I could achieve something right there that Tom Fazio taught me from day one is he wants to see the base of all the trees. Yeah. He couldn't stand when he went and looked at other architects courses and he had eight foot fills in front of a 50 year old Oak tree. Agreed. So Agreed. it's really got two dynamics going on here, which I think has made it the first of any golf course ever done in the world. This is my belief where it's combined this massive fill, which gets up to a height of 78 feet, and it combines to a, the, when you get to the four tees through the greens, with the exception of those four, the six parts of six fairways that are in the big fill, everything else is at and slightly below natural grade. And the bunkers are all cut into the ground. Everything at Calusa was built into the big fills. Here, it's cut into the ground. So you can, and we really specifically tried to combine the mass earth moving of a Calusa with the revegetation and the bunkering look of a Pine Valley. And so much so that in the permitting for this club, my partner, Jason Straka, who knows far more about the, the planting side and the turf grasses and the, the reveg than I do, we had it permitted to where we could only use 13 species of ornamental grasses, ground covers, and shrubs. And they are the, in this, we're in the Pine Barrens region. We're about an hour from Pine Valley. So we're in the same region of the country. Same, so we got sand. We're revegging this so that long term, and we're talking, we're in the neighborhood now, about halfway done with it. We've got about 800,000 ornamental grass plants that we put in the ground and shrubs already and counting will probably be in the million and a half to two million range when we get done with it and so the goal is to have you're going to have this big wow factor because of these mass hills that you know covers 40 acres and has 
10 T complexes and nine green complexes and parts of six fairways. But then the rest of the golf course is very low profile. These bunkers cut into the ground with all these, the rough edges that everybody is, is so everybody loves so much today, which I do too. I mean, yeah. so it really has been a, this is a, an extreme job for me because it's just, it's, this is the biggest thing I've ever worked on in the country ever. Dana, is this still a 27 hole complex? Yes, it is 27 holes. Now, I, I, I will tell you that this, this client has been and the board of directors of the Union League have been unbelievable to work for because that they entrusted to do this and to spend this much money is, you know, obviously takes quite a leap of faith. And uh, but the, the only thing that I did not get here that I wanted is I wanted it to be an 18 hole golf course. Uh, and the reason I wanted that is that there, where the clubhouse is now, which was going to be moved to a few hundred yards away on another 22 acres they just bought. But where the clubhouse is now, to get three nines in and out, the site became fairly tight. So the four holes that are by the clubhouse are not bad golf holes, but they're very low profile and they're real parallel to each other holes, which is – Jim knows and anybody else having a few of those in a round is fine, but having four of them right by the clubhouse is, is a weakness. And if I would have had four holes instead of six holes in that area, it would have enabled more things. And then I could have taken, I would have taken the entry road at that point all the way back in the property and put it up in the hill and had an entrance drive that would have 20, 30 feet of grade change on it, meandering through the property to climb up into that hill and, and, so the clubhouse would have been in a different location. That You're a big thinker. That's that's big thinking, Dana. Oh, this that's, is really well. When you see it, this is a big thinking place. And <laughs> and their own and their reason was because this club is primarily going to be a seasonal club yeah. where it's heavily played in June, July, August, primarily even in September. But their prime times are on Thursday afternoon, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it is packed because everybody wants to get back to the beach you know to be with their families by one or two o'clock right. so they felt they needed the three returning and, and from a business perspective they're right you can you can understand that so did it affect the quality of the golf course you know to me what we're going to have is we're going to have you know you're going to have 21 or two or three holes that are just on almost every hole and every tee shot you're going to stand on it and you're going to say wow and you're going to have four holes which are nice holes but everybody's going to be thinking and talking about, I can't wait to get to the other hole. I mean, it's, and that's just being real honest. I mean, they're yeah. not bad golf holes, and they're aesthetically right. pleasing, but they're just not as dramatic as what we have the rest of the property. And that kind of reminds me of, of Mike Strance's, uh, 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 as you know, a sentimental friend of yours, Bulls Bay. Have you ever seen Bulls Bay? Only one time, and I went and visited the day that I saw Mike was the only time I went there. And I went, I think, after I saw Mike. And uh, so that was the only time I was there. And, and as you're describing the Union thing, I think of Bulls Bay, uh, I think one of the mo most creative things I've ever seen from Mike Strantz. Uh, he builds up into the middle, and he takes this meandering road to get to the to the starting point, And then the golf course spills out away from that. That's big thinking. You're big thinking at, at, at Union League. But I have to ask you this. I have to ask you this. What speaks the biggest volume of what you have done at Union League, uh, Calusa, 
Is it the greens? Is it the routing? Is it the landform, the landscaping, the strategy? What speaks the biggest volume of, of what you were trying to do at the Union League, what you did at Calusa? Is it really the landform and, and all the surrounding area, or is there more to that? Well, Calusa has, again, it has an incredible setting on a site that had nothing except okay. trees. Yep. And and it looks natural, which was a, that was the overriding factor of what I was trying to create. Where Calusa really steps it up is, you know, off the tee, it's got wide fairways. It's not that hard off the tee. It's aesthetically dramatic, but it's not that hard. Yeah. Into and around the greens at Calusa are some of the most challenging ever built in all of golf. Yep. At the Union League, uh, Jeff McFadden, the general manager of, of the entire Union League, and we're talking they have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of employees. He and, and you know, 3,500 members. Down at this club, there's going to be around 500 or 550, I think. His thing was, I want the wow factor, but I want it playable. So the shots into the greens here are not near as challenging as they are, some shots are, but Calusa just never lets up. Yeah. Here, there's a lot of breather stuff and holes that you know you can make a birdie on if you're a decent player or an average guy can make a par. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. I think, you know, I would have to say I would, you know, the Golf Club Atlas people will go to town on it because they ain't going to like it. But, you know, I would say I fall back more to the way Fazio goes, and I think of creating a setting when there isn't much of one. And, nothing wrong with that. And, you know, I wanted to really create a place where people, if you go to the halfway house at this golf course right now, and you stand up there, and your first your first words, Jim, are going to be, I guarantee that, and you'll be laughing probably, and you're going to go, wow. Yeah. It's, and it, yeah. it just has that, and... Is that good or bad? You know, I think that's subjective, but it really it really is in fitting in what, what this client wanted. I have a question you know? going back to um, Arcadia Bluffs for a minute, and this is a question for both of you again. At, at Union League, you know, you have so much sand, so there's going to be a certain style of shaping. You references a minute ago, Dana, the naturalism look. And maybe you can talk a little about who you use for shaping and, and the skill that that takes. But at... Arcadia Bluff South, you have that geometric, that boxy jigsaw look. Was is there a key to making that? It, it, I mean, the to the untrained eye, you're like, okay, it's a steep bank and and flat sand at the bottom. You know, we could just dig this out and and grass the face. It doesn't look like there's a whole lot of artistry uh, that's required. And and I say that with all humility, knowing you know nothing about it. But Jim, you've worked on. Uh, Seth Rayner courses, so so you've been on equipment rebuilding this this type of thing. Tell me about the the challenges or the simplicity of building those shapes at a place like Arcadia Bluff South or a Yeamans Hall. You go well, ahead. I, I, I'm happy to do that, Dana. You know, uh, I'll be honest with you, Derek. Uh, when I talked to Dana as he was coming through Chicago, I was working at the Bobble Lane Club and the Glenview Club, and I knew Dana was coming through, and I wanted to join him at the Chicago Golf Club and just walk around and tour with him. And working at Yeamans Hall for over 20, 20, 21, 22 years now, there is a, there is a beauty in a Rainer McDonald design. There is a beauty. Now, are they free-flowing as... 
as Mother Nature would give us? No, they're, they're almost uh, opposite of that. The, the greens pop up out of the ground. The, the lines are very straight. The, the, the bunker faces are, are, are geometric. And there is a certain beauty in that. And you have to appreciate it. Uh, you have to understand it. You have to have seen 20, 30, 40 of the golf courses that I've seen, McDonald and Raider. No, they are not free-flowing. No, they don't go with the landforms. They're very abrupt. But there's something that's so appealing to that structure that comes out of the gown that's very geometric, as we've talked about. And then when I look at what Dana's done, when I look at what Fazio's done at Shadow Creek, Dana's done at Calusa, those long flowing lines, there's something that is a beauty about that. Do I favor one versus the other? I could go both ways. I do enjoy them both, but they're diametrically opposite. And that's what struck me that Dana was willing to take on that challenge of against the long flowing line. And he went to the straight line and must have fought every night with himself. <laughs> well, that, well, Jim, that, that is the sole reason why I kept the, the superintendent at that time was a guy named Scott Bordner. Now, Scott Bordner had been there for seven years. He came from Marion. He went to Chicago golf. And I started going down there. And the reason I was going, because I was building it, and I was so consumed with not doing anything the way I had before, I kept going down because I wanted to I, – sometimes I couldn't even remember. I could when – I, when I would go flag the line – and you're talking I'm surveying lines in now in fairways, so they don't even have a, any deviation. It's a straight line for 100 yards going into the middle of a bunker. And then on the back edge, I would start to take the grass line off the back left edge of the bunker. And it would look really – like just wrong to me the physically everything looked wrong and so i would fly down there just to look at the fairway lines then i'd go down another time just to start looking at the collars because they have collars on these 45 degree angles that i mean you, I mean, you put a regular greens mower on it it just slides it goes sideways yeah. the yeah. superintendent's like i can't maintain this and i so he went to chicago golf club with me and scott showed him how they welded little spikes into the rollers to keep them on the slopes you know, and so and then with the green contours, he you know he gave me which I don't know if I ever forwarded you to Jim, but I have the green scans, you know, on foot centers showing all the slopes color coded with all the percentages of the Chicago Golf Club, and the greens average eighty two hundred square feet there, and you get to some of the greens and sixty to seventy percent of the green is not pinnable, which normally would be just craziness because who would what client would let you just literally waste 50 60 70 percent of the green as non-pinnable so it's just there for show and for and for strategy because you you know you want to get a ball to a back left pin that's got a false side and a false back which is the way their collars would go then you may have to fly it in the front right to let it cut the slope and feed and roll for 60 70 80 feet and that's the only way to play chicago golf club in some instances and we did the same thing with the grid. The greens at the at the Arcadia average ninety two hundred square feet, the biggest greens I've ever done. And we did that so that we could recreate a lot. Now they're put they're push up greens with no drainage in them because the soul that whole site tested out as USGA quality greens mix. Wow! So it was very inexpensive to build too, which I love. But 
you could, so you could build big greens and other than your irrigation cost and the cost and the maintenance cost, which the owner understood and the owner wanted to do, you know, we built those big greens so we could somewhat create the contours of the Chicago golf club, not specifically. And we have, I would say our greens average in some cases, the most non-penable area in a green we may have might be 35 to 40%. Yeah. But you're talking, you know, there's wholesale parts of a green for, in some cases, 30, 35 feet that are not pinnable. They're just slopes. And, and so, Derek, I don't know if we, if I answered your question, I don't know if, if Dana did. I got a lot of information out of that, uh, more than I bargained <laughs> for. I guess what I was asking is, especially Arcadia Bluff, is there a learning curve and to to constructing features like that? And I think, Dana, you definitely said there was, because hence all the trips back to Chicago Golf Club, to figure out exactly what was going on that made that golf makes that golf course work so well and and look so precise. Um, it's it's a lot. I'm guessing you'll say, you know, building those types of bunkers, building those green features is a lot more complicated than it may appear because to the average resort player it's like oh here's a square green you know with a couple uh, tiers running through it and here's a uh, a bunker that wraps at a 90 degree angle around a corner like that's not complicated but it is well well with like just with the shapers you're dealing with you know these guys are nobody's used to doing this no exactly the guys i had on that job they you know they thought this was at the beginning was crazy what we were trying to do and so you're, you're having to all sort of learn and go through this together and to try to show them, you know, okay, we're going to try to, we have a back left pin on number one, but you, we want you to hit it into the middle of the green and catch that whole slope. That's just going to be tilting, you know, at six and 8%, 9% until it gets over by the pin where it's going to flatten out to 2% where the ball's finally going to stop. And, and it, that's very difficult for people. For me, it was difficult stretch for me and it was definitely difficult for the shapers and until we started to get into a flow of it and part of the reason i kept going back was just getting more of that information and relaying it and showing them the green scan because you, you can see on these green scans at chicago golf like 80 percent of the of the thing is red and orange which is non-pinnable and and they just they're super you know a, a shaper looks at that and it's like yeah, we can't you, know, you can't do that yeah, it goes mean, against every everything they're trained to do everything you've been taught so it was just a very you know I I, I also you know and then this will sound really nuts I, I was really proud of the fact that at this place that we didn't put any any catch basins in in the fairways at all and we have huge fairways here because you really one of the keys to that type of design I felt was really having the the width laterally sideways so that you had many different angles, depending on where the pin is, uh, you know, on the first hole at, at Arcade, if you're, if it pins on the right side, you're far better off being in the far left side of a 60 yard wide fairway. If the pins in the back left, you're far better off being in the far right side of that fairway to hit it into that, to catch that slope and then feed it into the flag. And almost every green is like that where the angles change daily because the greens are so large and where they do it, the strategy is just, just different than anything I've ever, ever done. And creating the shapes when Jim tells you that, it, it, you know, about, you know, you can obviously guess who my favorite architect of all time is because it, it without question is Rainer. 
And I think a lot of it was because he was just so, for the time, and McDonald together. But then Rainer obviously took over when uh, McDonald couldn't work anymore, which is why he did Chicago golf. But they just so much get this uh, that diametric look going where they're just at straight lines and 90-degree angles. When Jim said that, that was so hard for me to look at in the beginning. And I kept going back because I was worried I was doing something wrong or there was something I was forgetting. Mm-hmm. And I became incredibly close to the superintendent at that time. And guess where that superintendent is today? Uh, let me guess. Arcadia Bluff South. Nope. Oh. He's at Union League. Union League. Okay. In New Jersey. So here's a superintendent that's gone from Chicago golf to the most polar opposite place he could go in his lifetime mm-hmm. and he's on a learning curve now because he's seen stuff here he's never seen in his lifetime i can assure you and would do you feel that the long flowing lines or the straight lines you would gravitate to one is better than the other or both the same or it's okay that they're different well i think a lot of it is a site you know i i haven't been blessed to get uh, the sites that, you know, Tom Doak and Gil have gotten and you've worked on and, you know, Core Crenshaw, you know, because obviously I would not be doing on a site in Sanders would I ever even attempt to do long flowing lines like this. Yeah. Because yeah. that's not what the site would mandate there. And it would look ridiculous if you did. it. And uh, so, you know, at, you know, Aaron Hills has incredibly, you know, they're they're. Matt, they're not even abrupt as much as they are just with a few exceptions. They're just long and they're massive at Aaron Hills, just massive natural landforms. And, you know, if you start chopping things up on, on a site like that, I would think that wouldn't look very good. It's agreed. It, to me, it just really comes down to the, to to the sites and client objectives and budgets and, and, and everything else. Because I think of the 14th hole, correct me if I'm wrong. That short short four at Aaron Hills, it's downhill, fit. uphill, 15. Yep. That yep. hole is one of my favorite holes there. And, yep. you know, it's it, it kind of comes out of the ground on the green side, and you're teeing off up on a ridge line down to a valley. That's one of my favorite holes. I could do that all day long at Aaron Hills. Uh, was that kind of like what you were you were enjoying doing uh, and Ron Witten was in doing, and, and Mike Hurdson were doing, or was that just an anomaly and based on the on the ground? No, that was that's I, well, that's an interesting hole. I just literally two nights ago did a voiceover because they have me describing uh, the 15th hole that they're going to put up on their website for, and for a, a, a internet uh, thing they put out, magazine they put out, Darren Hills, and I did the 15th hole. And that was the last 40 acres that we acquired on that site at that time by the original owner. And it was because that that obviously you knew where you wanted the green. You knew you wanted to tee. It was just there. It didn't take a genius to figure it out. And you had that ridge running down the left side, the length of the hole, uh, with the massive oak tree in it, which is one of the five or six trees still left on the property. But what's interesting on that hole is – those two things were natural, but the but the area where the landing area was didn't drain. It was it was borderline being a wetland. It was just like it did not drain. So we actually put four and five feet of fill in that fairway. Can't tell uh, it, but it did. Yeah, no, and can't then, tell. 
and the other thing I really like there, because with short holes, what I think gets really lost is if you're starting to, you know, if they go on a, uh, the FTs, it becomes a drivable hole from the back. It's like 362, so nobody has tried it from the back. Probably could be done, but it's the penalty's too severe hitting a, you know, full-fledged driver, and it'd have to be downwind. Right. But if you go up a tease, it is drivable. But what I, the problem I have when people create these short holes, a lot of times there's, to me, the thought is, well, if you can't drive it, everybody just lays up, and generally there's no challenge in the layups. And I don't know if you found that. And I know you guys have done, have done some, and I've seen a lot of the, the work you've done and Tom and Gil and Bill and Ben. But I, it seems to me I really find a really what I consider, like Riviera is obviously the, number 10 is obviously the king. Yeah. It's but a crown jewel. Where yep. do you find those great drivable type holes where you have a strategy too to lay up? Yes. That's I love really, it. And the one at Aaron Hills, I'm telling you, that's one of the hardest tee shots out. That is probably the hardest tee shot on the course just to lay up. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was plenty wide enough. I thought I could see everything that, that was out in front of me. Uh, if I got into it, it was my own fault. I just thought it was one of the best holes there. Yeah, it's it's one of mine. I, I've always been partial to number nine, but the other, the short par three. But yes, yes. But 15 is a really great one, too. I think it's a really good short golf hole. And, Derek, that has long flowing lines. Uh, within uh, the context of a, of a high tee ground, a high uh, green, right. it has long flowing lines, and the bunkers tie in nicely. But – yeah, I, I know what he's saying. Right. You, you're kind of at this hitting like a, a really nice spot in your career right now. You've had two of the really maybe the two of the best new projects. And I consider Union League a new project because it's really a start over with that in yep. Arcadia Bluff South. You're in a great spot. Uh, you're busy everywhere. So you're in a great spot now. But looking back on your career, especially your time with, with Mike Hurdson, did you ever feel looking back and even in the moment going back into the, you know, the nineties that you and Mike ever got the credit you deserved for the golf courses you were building for the diversity of golf courses that you were building? You know, I, I look at your output and I'm amazed at the different sites, the creativity. And we think of this era and the names that popped to mind. And when we just talked to Reese Jones, Jim and I just talked to Reese Jones, he, you know, he referenced, during this same period, you know, the big designers, Nicholas, Fazio, you've mentioned Fazio. He was, he's always been dominant. Uh, Reese Jones, uh, Bobby Jones, you know, those were like some of the biggest firms. And Herzen and, and Fry was right there. But did you, so the question is, did you, do you feel like you've ever gotten the credit you deserve for the golf courses that you were building? Well, I honestly, I never worried about it because I just, you know, I love what I do. I think my relationship with my clients is is unparalleled because, you know, I'm, I'm an all-in guy. And I'm you can probably tell I get very animated. I'm very passionate. <laughs> and I just lo- I physically love building golf courses. And honestly, I'm at a stage where now I'm 58. You know, God willing, I'm going to have another good 25 years of working because – I wouldn't care if somebody gave me a billion dollars tomorrow. My life wouldn't change other than I'd fly on a private jet to my jobs because this is what I love doing. And I, I guess the only thing I can say about does it bother me, it doesn't really bother me, but I, I, I really do sincerely believe when you look at that, the whole body of work, you know, I don't really care if they think I'm good, bad, or indifferent, but it has to be, you would think, recognize 
I don't know if there's been an architect over the last 30, 35 years, which has done a wider variety of looking golf courses than we have. And again, when I go to the guys that I look up to the most, the Cord Crenshaw, the, the, the Tom Dope, the Gil Hans, the, you know, Jim, you know, when he was working with Tom, these guys did really, really great golf courses, undeniably. But I really like when people start taking departures and try to do different looks, different bunkers, different style of golf. And, and, and most, you know, just like some people don't like Reese Jones courses or Tom Fazio courses or whatever, you know, I just think people should have tried to, to make a change. Cause I, you know, I know Tom Doak did, when, what's the one he did in Texas, Jim, did you work on it? And they, uh, Rawls course at Texas tech. Because that yeah, was, a, I worked on that. A boatload of dirt there. And I yep. love, I've never been there. I'd love to go see it. Cause it was such a departure than anything he had done. Yep. And I just like that. I mean, I'm not saying one style again. I, I've been very clear. I, I, I like Tom Fazio's golf courses just as much as I like Corin Crenshaw golf courses. They're just different. And I recognize them both for what they are. And, you know, so that I didn't get credit or I did get too much credit or it, it just never even enters my thought. I just love what I do. And, and God willing, I can do it for another 20, 25 years. And I guess I like that. Uh- I like that you liked the variety and you were willing to take that chance. Uh, some people aren't willing to take that chance, uh, but you were. But I'd like to ask you, Dana, if you had to change it all over again, I don't think that you would could answer it uh, 100%, but would you have changed working with Andy Banfield? Would you have changed learning how to shape with Mike uh, Strands? Would you have changed... Uh, having the chance to work with Mr. Tom Fazio, because little pe- little to anybody know, I remember you interviewed with Mr. Die. I right. was uh, I had met you back then. That was in the in the in the in the late uh, late eighties. Uh, Would you have changed any of that? No, because I you know I learned obviously you know I'm very I tell Tom Fazio every time I see him I owe my career to him and then to Andy Banfield. And, you know, I wouldn't if I wouldn't have worked for Tom, Tom wouldn't have given me the chance. And Andy hired me and he taught me how to move the dirt. And then I was taught how to shape from Mike Strance. I couldn't you know, I'm looking I'm looking at I'm at the clubhouse here and I'm looking above a 60 foot tall trees and I'm looking at a hillside in the distance. And, you know, I, I would never even have learned to think that way, even though I wouldn't even have been able to think it was possible if I wouldn't have had that training. If I would have gone to work for Pete or if I would have gone to work for, you know, for uh, working on a bunker crew like Jeff Bradley working for Core Crenshaw, you know, my, my whole perspective on everything would have been different. And I would have obviously gone a different route. And, you know, I'm just, you know, again, forget about the golf. You know, what I think when I think of Tom and I think of Andy and I think of Mike Strands, the common denominator is the same thing I would tell you with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw and, you know, Gil Hans and yourself. I mean, you're talking really some of the nicest people I've ever met in the, in, in the industry. And as you know, our business has a lot of characters and not all of them are good characters. <laughs> and and but these guys that have really achieved a lot of success and the people I look up to. 
are almost with all in all cases are really good people. And, you know, I agree. And, and that's another thing. I just, I just, I love that about the business and what I learned. I just am really, I, I consider myself as fortunate a guy that's ever lived. Yeah, it does, definitely cool. doesn't think it's not a, a place for you to be second guessing your career decisions. It's worked out pretty well. Well, I, I think so. So hopefully there's a lot more to it. Absolutely. And I, I have always admired the, the versatility and the variety of your work. The older that I get, the more I appreciate uh, how much we need different golf styles and different golf settings and different golf experiences. And um, you and your work with, with Mike Hurdson before that, it definitely brought that into the life of the public and private golfer. So well done. Well, I appreciate that. And say hi to Jason Straker for me. I know he remembers me from way back. No, he knows. Everybody knows you, man. <laughs> you're, you're like me. When they say my name, everybody does just what you did. They sort of laugh. When they say him, everybody sort of smiles and laughs because, of, you know, they, everybody, to my knowledge, I'm sure there's, well, there might be a few exceptions that I know. <laughs> but most people are going to smile and laugh when they think of you at all times. I hope that's the way they are with me. Well, I, I really appreciate you spending time with us, Derek. Uh, you can see the passion that Dana has. We share that same passion. Uh, I continue to seek out what Dana's doing, talking to him every time I get a chance. Likewise, this, this podcast was full of passion. Well done, men. I really appreciate it. Dana, thanks so much for coming on the salon with us. No, I really appreciate it, Derek. Nice talking to you, Jim. <laughs> So, Jim, I want to run this by you. I had had this thought, and I'm, I think I'm glad I didn't do it now, but when I when we brought Dana on, I was going to lead off with a, a joke, something like this, and I was going to say, you know, Dana, you're known as a strict minimalist and somebody who absolutely despises moving earth unless you have to. <laughs> what are your thoughts on on a, a place like Calusa Pine? You know, like how hard was that for you to do that? Which is, And, the, you know, I don't think he would, I don't know if he would have laughed or not, but the joke is, of course, that, He's not that way. He's always been known as, as somebody who, who likes to move Earth around, and, and he's a creator. He came up, as he mentioned, uh, with Tom Fazio and, and learned design through that lens of how to, as as you know, the old joke was like, what's, what's Tom Fazio's ideal site, you know? A parking lot you know that's that was the you know that's kind of the, the the meme out there and dana fry you know that's how we learned golf and that's how he thinks he's a he's a visionary guy he's a big thinker but i didn't know if, if you thought that he'd laugh at that or not i left it out because i wasn't sure <laughs> if he'd get the well, joke I'm, I'm glad you didn't say it it may have turned the tables of the whole conversation but really <laughs> but really derek you have brought out a lot of of what people are thinking about in these in these past episodes and he might have laughed with us but we all need to laugh at ourselves does that make sense Derek? we all need to laugh at ourselves i, I definitely could could do uh, you know i need to, to tattoo that on my arm or something you know don't take yourself so seriously <laughs> <laughs> because when you take your when you take yourself too seriously then the moment of the day and, and what you're doing uh, it, it just becomes too much. And and your joke would have been the great. I would have laughed. Maybe we'd have been just me and you laughing. <laughs> you know, I don't know. But I saw Fazio's work at Shadow Creek. That is moving some dirt. Absolutely. But the out. But the outcome was fantastic in most people's eyes. So. What's wrong with moving a little dirt? I did it for Pete Dye. What's wrong with yeah, it? Yeah, you know, and I asked you this in the Reese Jones uh, discussion, 
and we were, this was in relation to the Creek course at Hammock Dunes in Florida, which was built in these, this backwater, this swamp area. And I ask you, would building something like that be interesting to you? And, and you kind of, it kind of threw you back, but a similar question in a different site where you actually get to work with sand, but you have to like move it and, and carve it and create it like Calusa pines. Does that interest you as an artist? Oh, for sure. But you know what? When you threw that question at me, I stalled, man. I, <laughs> I mean, I stalled. You were like, oh, you were man, in the swamp. You, you were right there well, in the I swamp. Was, I was I was thinking <laughs> I was thinking because I didn't have the right answer. But now you threw the next best question at me. And what and that is, if you had uh, uh, an unlimited amount of sand, what would you do with that? What could you create on a flat piece of ground? And I'm telling you. The creative juices would be flowing, maybe not in the swamp, but in but in a big bucket of sand on a flat piece of ground, the juices would be flowing. But credit Reese for taking on that taking on that uh, task. Credit Reese for taking on the tasks of all of the things he was challenged to do, and the same thing for Dana Fry. He was willing to move that dirt at Calusa. He was willing to move that dirt at Arcadia, and. His latest project, the Union League, yeah. he's telling us how much dirt he's moving, moving, and proud of it. And that's conviction. What's wrong with that conviction? It's, it ties back into the age-old thought. You know, is is golf architecture? Is it art? Is it engineering? Is it salesmanship? Like, where do those circles overlap? Like, what's the intersection? And f- for Dana Fry engineering is is got to be a big part of it you know there's a lot of there's a lot of creativity and artistry behind that as well but not afraid to get the big shovels out and move things around and shift it to get that and also ties back into this the whole concept of we talked about with reese is what is a good golf site jim urbina's good golf site is 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 little micro contours and sand and grasses and just you know beautiful subtle site uh Somebody else's perfect site, Reese Jones, you know, and, and I mentioned Jim Eng, views, you know, if you can get up on high tees and, and have things to look out on, like that's the of uh, player experience that you're valuing, you know, like what are you seeing? Like it's a majestic backdrop for golf. That might be a good site. Dana probably has never saw a site that wasn't a good site. <laughs> <laughs> and ready to move it, move the dirt to create it if it had to be. And you know what, Derek? I'm a golf snob. Uh, you know, when I talk about the little micro undulations that I learned to appreciate in Scotland and Ireland, I continue to seek those out. But I also worked for Pete Dye, who wasn't afraid to move dirt. Mm-hmm. I did it at Arizona State University. I did it at a lot of the golf courses I worked on with Pete. And, for example, under the Renaissance Golf Design banner, I did the golf course at uh, Texas Tech University, the Walls course. We moved over a million cubic yards. So it, it it's in my blood. I prefer the small microundulations, but a good site is in the eye of the beholder. Cascada for Reese Jones. Arcadia Buffs for Dana Fry. Bobby Weed has his ocean that you had to look out there and, and imagine. We are all looking for something that stirs our souls and every one of us, as you said, sees something different in a piece of land. And the power is in the imagination. And what is so different than Jim Ng's imagination to Dana Fry's imagination to Reese Jones 
or to my favorite mentor, my all-time mentor, Pete Dye. It's in the imagination, and it's how you take it and what you do with it, and how will the golfing public perceive it? Absolutely. I'm really interested to see some of Dana's new, new things. You know, one thing about in this dichotomy between Dana Fry and, and where he branches off from, from Tam, Tom Fazio, and we can talk about Mike Strands in this a little bit as well. Uh, you know, Dana Fry and Mike Hurdson worked together for so many years, and they built Calusa Pines together. I, I think one thing you see at Calusa Pines is that you often don't see in Fazio courses. And when I say this, I'm going to qualify it by saying, you know, Fazio, Tom Fazio has built hundreds of golf courses all over the place. So you can't generalize all of them. But the knock on, on Fazio is often that a lot of the features that he builds aren't there for strategic purposes or to promote a, a, a tactical way of of approaching a hole they're there for for framing and visual and and uh composition and and people obviously respond very strongly and favorably to that but i think what what dana fry does at calusa pines and i'm and i know it's there at arcadia south and i i can't wait to see it at union league is is there's a a very strong strategic element to those golf courses as well Uh, playing angles uh using contour to affect shots um thinking about uh, how players are approaching holes w- with distance and, and angles and, and just all those classic strategic thoughts are, are really present uh, at Calusa Pines and, and I think elsewhere as well. So I'm anxious to see that. It seems like it's potentially an, an evolution, um, especially at Union League. That's going to be an exciting project to watch. And I'm, I'm curious to see also, you know, if building Arcadia South and kind of getting into that headspace with McDonald and Rayner, if that, if that's going to seep in somehow with those kind of principles into Union League. And you know what? He wasn't afraid to to talk about the distance of the ball. He wasn't afraid to talk about how how long we have to make these golf courses. He said it at Calusa. He said it at Union League. He talked about he's not afraid to move a tee back. I agreed with him in some uh, in some form and fashion. But if you don't mind, could I read this quote from you from Darwin? And it really talks about the game and and the distance and, and what Dana and I and you talked about uh, for a little bit. Do you mind? Oh, please do. And I quote from Bernard Darwin. The architects have done nobly. They have fought the good fight, but it ought not be a fight. The fact that it threatens to become so is the fault of the ball. Whether or not the ball can ever be brought back to its proper limits is another story. But unless it can, the architects will be forever fighting an uphill battle, end quote. A hundred years ago, Bernard Darwin was talking about the architects have fought the good fight. But Dana Fry is not afraid to add a little distance here and there for the sake of strategy. And your point about Tom Fazio's golf courses being... Uh, in in the scale and the beauty and the playability, you know, we all derive something from golf architecture, whether it's distance, whether it's strategy, whether it's composition and beauty, as, as we've talked about. And Dana seems to be going down that uh, willing to take that challenge of some of the best players. He's a good player. His son's a good player. I mean, he's around people who hit the ball a country mile. So he's not, he's ready and, and willing to accept that challenge of length and how to, how to attack it. But 
Bernard Darwin was talking about it almost 100 years ago, and we all continue to make that fight. But, but Dana Fry is not afraid of it. He loves the challenge. He did it at Calusa. And I agree with you. I look forward to seeing Union League. And as Dana Fry sets his own standard, what is going to be his avenue of success, which he's already enjoyed, but where will it go for the next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. Jim, how much persuasion or influence does an architect such as yourself have in that debate? Because you're dealing with clients, right? And and of course, there are going to be some clients that, you know, have the stars in their eyes and they're going to envision, you know, some major tournament, high profile tournament coming the way. So they're going to want 7,800 yards. But when you're dealing with, with an older golf course and making a decision if you need to lengthen it or not, or if you get a new project, how much influence does the architect have on keeping the golf course shorter rather than longer? Great question. So it's relevancy. What is relevant to the topography? What is relevant to the membership who's playing it? I've been asked many a times to make a, a, an old golden age design longer to accept the challenge of, of, of the new membership coming in or the younger players that play that play it. And I said to you, in reference to Alistair McKenzie's golf courses, never uh, going out, uh, never being outdated, that his second row of bunkers, his second shot bunkers were really the first shot bunkers of today's modern technology. So I'm constantly questioned. I'm constantly challenged to make the golf course longer and, and, and more challenging. And I always ask the membership, Derek, I always ask them for the 1% of the people who were going to play it. Do you really want to change the character of this golf course for a 1%? I say, I say, let's make it for the 99% of the golfing membership clubs that I consult at. Let's make it the best golf course we can for them. And I'm willing to add a T here and there. But my job, my job is to make sure 99% of the other golfing membership public golfers are in enjoying it just as much. It's always in the back of everyone's mind. I try not to dwell on it. But I do understand its relevance in today's uh, game, today's technology, and the athletic superiority of some of these young men and women who play it. God, that ball, that club speed is so fast. And you're thinking, how far, where is it going to stop? Yeah, and it's... It, it goes back to that thing you're just talking about. Like, who, who are we Who are we building these golf courses for? Who have they been built for? It's such a small percentage of the, of the population. And I just wonder if, if there was never another golf course built that was more than 6,800 yards, would that turn people off? Would that damage the reputation of golf somehow? You know, if... if if every golf course automatically had to shrink down to 6,400 yards maximum, would people stop playing? Yeah. I, and I, I don't know Great the question. answer to that. I, I, maybe some people, maybe if, you know, you worked really hard to be able to drive the ball 300 yards and, and you think that that's, you know, not going to be a fulfilling experience playing a shorter golf course, but you can still hit driver, right? And, you know, depending on the architecture. I just, I'd like to think that if the architecture is interesting enough and has interesting challenges or things to think about at different points down the hole, whether it's in the first landing zone or, as you mentioned with McKenzie, in the second landing zone, short of the green. If a golf course is interesting, I'd like to think that people 
all of all abilities and, and all distances could be attracted to that. I'd like to think that that ideal is out there. And then, but then I think I go back to what, <laughs> what David Kidd said. And he said, you know, we've got too many McDonald hamburgers out there, you know, <laughs> we, we, yeah. we don't want a, a you know, a, a bland tasting hamburger. And that's what, what, what yeah. golf in America is in too many cases. So I'm talking around and, in circles now, but I just no, like no, to think the golf courses but, could be built shorter and shorter instead of longer and longer. And that was our discussion with Jeff Mingay at the same, uh, at the old course of St. Andrews. I don't care what the par is. I don't care that somebody shoots, and I said this jokingly, 34 or 42 under. <laughs> it's the best best man or best woman won that day. It doesn't. It's not relevance to par. And if it was only 6,400 yards, or if it was only 6,800 yards, Derek. But the par was changed to par 64 or par 68 so that there was some sense of competition, I guess, between two players or 10 players, then it wouldn't matter to me. That's why I prefer to design straight holes. Because if you build dog leg holes and you build S holes, then the idea that the length somehow has to be adjusted to compensate for that is lost. And with a straight hole, you can simply interject bunkers at different lengths so that all players are challenged, not just the ones that get to the dog leg or not just ones to get to the end of the S hole or the angle. And that's the dilemma. How much longer are we going to make them when you and I both know 6,400 yards could be as fun as anything. Yeah. Do you, you want to know what the, the most fun, and not, this is a polarizing golf course, but the most fun, action-packed, kind of thoughtful, um, mesmerizing 6,500-yard golf course is Tobacco Road. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so much interest in <laughs> And yes. I just call it and that's 64. Yeah. And it's not a long golf course. And, and I'm sure there are people who do consider it too short, but the, the biggest thing you hear about it is people thinking it's too hard or it beats them up when, uh, it's yeah. interesting that, a, that a golf course that isn't 7,500 yards could draw that reaction, but it's really it goes to show you how powerful, interesting architecture and shaping, uh, and, and visual stimulation and visual intimidation, how, how big of a tool that can be instead of pure distance. And you bring up a great point, Mike Strance. How emotional did Dana Fry get when he started talking about the inspiration he drew from Mike Strance? I mean, I kind of had a tug at my heart because I could sense the emotion that Dana had talking about Mike Strance. Here's Mike Strance, the artist that conveys these ideas on canvas and then builds them as you said, Tobacco Road, or one of my favorites, Monterey Peninsula Country Club, it will stand the test of time. Pure art always will stand the test of time. Sometimes geometric and, and, and mathematical golf courses can't stand the test of time because they rely on numbers. But art will always win out, and thoughtfulness will always win out, and those kind of golf courses will be timeless. Good point. Tobacco Road. I've seen it. It's a blast to play. It's on the same line as Monterey Peninsula Country Club. Art, timeless. Could play it forever. 
Yeah, and on that, maybe just a final note here, Jim. I do kind of see like a similarity between Strands and, and Dana. I always, I've always thought that the Herds and Fry Ovoir it was a little underrated. Ooh, good they, they, good they're, there's a lot of that um, beautiful visual composition, but they they really get the most out of their sights. There's a, a lot of interesting shot dilemmas that they place. Uh, and that kind of ties into Fazio, but there's always this little edge thing that, that that I see in a lot of their golf courses that reminds me of Strands. It's not, it's never as overt or as fantastical in a way that that Strands' architecture was. But you, I think I can start to see Dana Fry kind of el- maybe edging that direction a little bit more to do what he did at, at Arcadia South. You know, pulling in all of those Chicago golf club shapes and references. Well, you know, not an completely original idea it does take i think a lot of creativity to to reimagine those and to insist uh, on doing that and doing it well and then again going back to union league i think we're going to see a, a lot of visual drama some strandsian moments on that course at least at least i hope so but um that that was a a really beautiful way to talk about strands dana had a beautiful way of talking about him and you know i do think they have uh, a bond you could you could definitely hear it when Dana oh, speaks of it. It was a bond. It was a bond. And, and Derek, as all of our podcasts have gone, you often wonder when we're done talking to these people, these very emotional, passionate people who, who share the same thing that we love, golf architecture, you often wonder and you will wonder, how will history perceive them? How will history perceive all of us in the game that we love uh, and the game that we've We've uh, uh, unveiled our, our our deepest thoughts in the creation of them, the design of them, the playability of them. How will history perceive all of us? What will they say about Strance versus Dana Fry versus Reese Jones, Bill Coor, our favorite? The list goes on and on. I wonder what will history perceive? What will they say about them, about us when we're long gone? Boy, that's 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 a something major to th- to think about isn't it you know a lot of pe- a lot of designers right now are scratching their head with maybe they have a uh, they're gulping hard <laughs> what will my <laughs> legacy be i'd like to think that well, that there are so few opportunities relatively speaking that that designers get that when you do get a chance to do something original say something have a point of view Use that opportunity to do something meaningful. And I think a lot of people, especially in, in this period of time, this current generation, I think we're seeing a lot of that, which is really nice to see. History will be kind on that. History is not going to be kind on, you know, the people that were building golf courses without their heart in it, you know, uh, building it to somebody else's desires, following orders, building what the, the guy next to them was building. You know, that stuff shows up pretty pretty obviously, too. If you're going to do it, take your chance and say something. And a lot of them have said something. And I always refrain from asking every one of our guests, how will you, how will you, would you like history to remember you by? But that's no need to ask that question. They've showed it. They have allowed us to play yep. it. Then we make up our own decisions. It's in the work. And, and us golf snobs, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll pretend to be so all important to judge. But, you know, as David Kidd says, who's going to judge? The people who show up and play the golf there course. There you go. 
Well, a lot of people have shown up over the years to play golf courses that Dana Fry, and I, we have to keep continuing to go back and mention Mike, Dr. Mike Hurd's in, in that as well. So much of their career was together. Uh, and Tom Fazio going back then. But a lot of people have played Dana Fry's golf courses. His imprint is on so much quality work out there. One thing I will say that there's not a lot of uninteresting Dana Fry DNA golf courses out there. It was great to talk to him, Jim, wasn't it? He's a great guy, great guy to talk to. Um, and he's got a he's got a lot of work ahead of him. He's going to keep 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 going and keep moving. He's got a lot of work ahead of him, and he is still. I consider him a ten on the best dressed men of golf architecture. That guy, uh, he's a GQ uh, uh, cover. Uh, uh, kind of like me, yeah. Kind of like yeah. Me. He's he got you <laughs> just by a little bit, Jim. <laughs> just a yeah. little bit. Somebody's <laughs> got to be number one. Somebody's got to be number two too, though. So you fill out that role. Uh, well. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, uh, that guy, uh, uh, he speaks. He speaks well. His actions show it. I enjoy talking with him. Uh, what a great interview. I agree. And Jim, we're going to do it again soon. Thanks to everybody for listening. That'll wrap up. What is this salon? volume number 11 thanks you Derek thank you